Hi, this is Colin. A few years ago, I recorded a conversation that you're about to hear. It's with John McPhee, who is a legendary writer of literary nonfiction, mostly associated, of course, with The New Yorker, but also the author of many books, most of them based on things that he did write about for The New Yorker. And I think the inventor of a certain kind of sensibility that really informs public radio. Public radio inherited some of McPhee's inquisitiveness about the things in the world that seem simple and everyday, but are more complex and interesting. And I know that informs the specific thinking of the Colin McEnroe show, something we talk about all the time. So, in a way, this is our spiritual grandfather that we're talking to. John McPhee, we loved talking to him. We hope you enjoy listening. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I played for years in an informal basketball league that included some very good players and some pretty bad ones like me. It was called the jungle because its ethos involved an unusual level of comfort with the destruction of other players, either physically or psychologically. If you could play three days a week in the jungle and live to tell the tale um, – Actually, I'm not really sure what you got out of that, but you got something anyway. Uh, one of the best players was Dick Fairbrother, who held the all-time scoring record at Wesleyan University. Fairbrother was a master of the withering remark, and over the years, there were two or three times when he would respond to somebody's ill-conceived shot or missed defensive switch with the words, a sense of where you are, Colin. That's the title of John McPhee's book about Bill Bradley. Fairbrother had become a dentist in later life. He wasn't much of a reader. I think he used to even say that was the only book he'd read in years. But it's a testament to John McPhee's economy and eloquence that his six-word summation of this fundamental truth of who got spat out on the floor of the jungle. And so as we prepare to talk to John McPhee today in connection with his book draft number four on the writing process, it's on the one hand worth noting that, yes, so much of what he's written, so much of the truth of what he's written is incorporated now into our understanding of the world, whether we were aware of digesting it or not. And on the other hand, there are, I, I did this experiment on social media. I put up a post saying, I'm going to be recording an interview with John McPhee. He absolutely is the writer's writer. So those of us who are writers know about him. People who are readers of the New Yorker know about him. How much explaining do I have to do to the rest of you? And there were other people who said they needed to know that he wasn't the bass player for Fleetwood Mac or other areas of confusion. So with that in mind, John McPhee began contributing to The New Yorker in 1963. He's written more than 100 pieces for the magazine. 
including, yes, a profile of Bill Bradley during his days as a Princeton basketball star, hence a sense of where you are. He's won a Pulitzer Prize for his Annals of the Former World, which is a massive examination of American geology. And he's written about just about everything else that you can imagine. One of the things that uh, defines a John McPhee story or book sometimes is that notion of the complexity behind the simplicity. So he can write a book about oranges, and it's fascinating. And in many respects, his spirit informs a lot of what we do on this show. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later, although this is not a show about this show. It's a show about John McPhee. So lengthy introduction. John McPhee, welcome and happy to have you here, honored to have you here in connection with draft number four. Thank you. Nice to be here, too. I'd sort of like to begin with, I mean, there's so much to talk about. This is a book about how you write. It's very much about uh, some of the techniques that have resulted in the, these remarkable pieces of writing. There, there's a lot to talk about. The first chapter is all about structure. I'd like to leap ahead of that and talk about something that that I'm always intrigued by among people who do literary nonfiction or the literature of fact, or, or which I think is what you, you call it in, at, in your course at Princeton. And that's the question of disappearing. It seems to me one of the things that you have to do so, so often in these long pieces is ultimately cause people that you are interviewing and writing about to achieve a different kind of comfort level with you, right? If you're going to be with them for days and days and weeks and weeks and try to get out of them things that are other than their prepared script for dealing with reporters, you have to disappear a little bit. You have to become somebody else to them. Is that a fair statement? And if so, can you talk about how you do it? It's certainly a fair statement. And it's where, I mean, it's an essential thing in in my work, it's why I'm flabbergasted with the admiration of the daily reporters who can go out, get a story, get it all together, write it, and submit it all in, in one day because I usually get nowhere in one day, and <laughs> but I hang around. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, people let me hang around, and I'm there a long time forming first, second, and third impressions and scribbling notes and just watching people do what they do. And I think that they get sort of used to me and then they go on doing what they do. I would much prefer to be in a pickup with a ranger somewhere than across a desk from the same ranger just trying to do an interview. Is it also sometimes the act of you doing certain things? In other words, if you're going down a river with somebody and you're the two of you are pitching a tent or whatever it is that you do, sooner or later you become that person who's doing those things in the other person's mind as opposed to this person who's trying to extract precious information from me. Yeah, if I'm on a on a journey with people and I mean and you're intense as I have been on various occasions and everything, sure that's that's so you're participating in the thing together. I want to talk about the way that I think one of the things that distinguishes a McPhee piece, although it may be a little bit deceptive to say this, is that we are famous for a reliance on simply telling the way things are, as opposed to any kind of advocacy journalism, this is the way things should be, or isn't this terrible. You, you tell the way things are. And, and I think part of the notion is that the thing perfectly described will speak for itself. So here you are. I'm just going to just to help the, the listeners kind of get a, a memory or a flavor of McPhee. You're describing a tugboat. I think it's called the Billy Joe Bowling. It's pushing a lashed together series of barges, as you say, a good deal longer than the Titanic toward a lock on the Illinois River. You write, 
Gingerly, you inch your 30,000 tons up there past the bullnose. If you are heading downstream and you come in at too much of an angle, your head can become wedged between the short wall and the long wall while your stern is swung around by the current, with the result that your vessel becomes a lever, prying at the navigation lock until the masonry breaks, wires snap, loose barges are draped all over the dam, and your Billy Joe bowling, whatever it may be called, is hanging on the brink and listing. <laughs> I, I want to tease that apart a little bit. Can, we, can I first of all ask you, okay, that's written in what we might call the second person, second person narration. You do this. You right. ensure. So wh- why write it that way? Well, I spent 16 hours a day on, on that project uh, standing in the pilot house of the so-called towboat. It's really shoving the thing. And um, the, I'm there with one of the two river pilots who traded off. And uh, I got to know them very well, and they told me exactly what they were doing all the time. And so it was easy to, uh, or it felt comfortable, put it that way, to slip into the second person and and describe this as, as if uh, the reader is piloting the towboat. I did that once in, a, in the cab of a Union Pacific locomotive. And in the, with the same thing. I wouldn't just try to do it if I hadn't spent so much time standing there learning from him exactly what he does. What do you want the reader to think about this? And by that question, I mean, do you want them to think, wow, this is just a really interesting thing? And it's that, once again, McPhee style of the complexity of the thing that people think of as simple. Or is there... A bigger message. I mean, you're by using the second person to you, you're asking us to inhabit the skin and the life and the dangers and the risks of this person. Is there something you want us to think about all that? That's not a primary motive. I think it's interesting and that the reader would be interested in it. I'm interested in it. And secondary thoughts about the philosophy of it all <laughs> or the or the you know, the meaning of it is uh, should be, in my view, in the eye of the beholder, of the reader, not not the writer. I don't want to tell people how to think. But I I think it's, I mean, I'm often called an environmental writer and so on and so forth. And I certainly have my biases in this direction. But my idea about the way to describe that sort of thing is directly and simply and let the judgments be in the mind of the beholder, of the reader, because I think it's more effective that way. And I, I think there's a little more craft in it, a little more artistry maybe. Yes. Well, absolutely. I mean, any sentient reader who's reading this is going to say, as we often do reading your work, wow, these jobs that make up kind of the landscape, the backdrop of America or our lives, they're harder, they're more complicated, and they're more dangerous than they look. It's just stuff that we don't really think about that much. So so they're going to do that. But I'm going to try to be John McPhee and and push at you a little bit more about this. Because I see in a lot of this kind of almost Walt Whitman's insistence that we look at each other. Ultimately, if you read a lot of John McPhee, that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're looking at other people, usually other Americans. You're looking at them in a way that you ordinarily don't. Yeah, I know that you you want to step away from the notion that you have any kind of overarching philosophy. But would you at least plead guilty to that, to that notion that you want people to see each other? Well, I guess so, sure. But the thing is, I don't go get in my 
car or on an airplane because I want to go make people see each other. <laughs> I, 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 go, I go out there because I'm doing a, a book. I'm doing pieces of writing, all of which relate to freight transportation. Mm-hmm. And I get an opportunity to go to the Illinois River and get on a towboat and barge rig and or to the Union Pacific uh, train and so forth. And and then I soak up what I can soak up when I'm there and I write a story trying to show a reader what it's like to be there. And the, the kind of philosophy that you're mentioning c- comes in after that mm-hmm. or is just built into it from the start without uh, – uh, but I, I really would avoid anything that uh, smacked of a sermon. Right. Well, yeah, I was gonna. I was obviously trying to get you to do one, but that's fine. We'll yeah, we'll do our own sermons after we read your work. <laughs> There's another part of this too that I think that I can get you to talk about without uh, it being a sermon, and that is. Although, let me quote a divine. Uh, I think uh, Emerson said something to the effect that we have shielded the the dining table too far from the slaughterhouse. And it seems to me in a lot of the work, one of the things that you're saying is there's this whole bunch of realities that undergird the way that you live. And so here you are writing about uh, an orange juice plant factory or a refinery or whatever you want to call it. You actually say they more closely resemble oil finaries than auto plants. The evaporators are tall assemblages of looping pipes quite similar to the cat cracking towers that turn crude oil into gasoline. And, you know, as I read that, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, A, you're trying to tell us a little bit about the substructure that we don't see of our lives. And I'm also aware of the fact that I had to go look up what cat cracking means because I'm so shielded from the substructure of my life that I don't know what catalytic cracking is or how vital it is to the process of making a refined petroleum product. And do you ever feel as though we, the average person just doesn't know enough about this kind of stuff that you could just go through life not knowing what cat cracking means? Oh, no. I think you can go through life quite happily not knowing <laughs> what cat cracking means. I think that the, I think that I'm, I'm hoping that somebody that reads this thing would be interested to learn that and in whatever context it is. The to learn about the concentration of orange juice, which isn't as prevalent now as it was once. I mean, you know, canned frozen orange juice is not a not sort of as ubiquitous as it was back then. Well, okay. Well, I will. I will now stop trying to make you into any kind of moralist. <laughs> <laughs> but but then that raises the question of how it is that you came to do what you're doing. A lot of that is answered or at least hinted at in this book, draft number four on the writing process by John McPhee. First of all, you didn't start out writing for The New Yorker or did you not write for television for a little while? Right. Correct. In the first place comes the impulse to be a writer. When And I was very young. I was, I was one digit old, you know, when, when I began to feel that. And as they go through your teenage years and all that, you you don't know what kind of writer you are. William Shawn, editor of The New Yorker back then, used to say that uh, it was taking young writers longer to figure out what kind of writers they are. <laughs> and I don't quite follow all of that. But the notion I'm trying to get to is that you need to learn this empirically, to learn what kind of writer you are by doing various forms of writing. Mm. If you tell yourself as a result of being in an English class that that you're a poet or something, go write the poems. Don't tell yourself you're a poet until you've written the poems, and when they're lousy, throw them out and then do something else. 
do a novel, do factual writing. And I did, did all that. I wrote awful poetry when I was in my teens, and I wrote some fiction. I wrote nonfiction all before graduating from college. Then the first professional job I had actually, or, or, or thing I undertook to do, actually happened to be writing uh, plays for television, adaptations of stories and, and original plays. And I, I did that for about a year, and I was successful at it. But this was in the era when television had shows that went on for 50 minutes and ended, and the sets were struck, and <laughs> that was it. It wasn't a series. But I, I learned there that that really wasn't what I wanted to do. There were, I wanted to make the whole shoe, not to have the casting director, the director, and the actors and actresses take over. And so you, you, you kick around when you're a younger writer is what I'm saying. And I, I'm, I feel very, very lucky that I settled down in a niche where, where I'm comfortable, where I feel that I, for all my complaints about how tough writing is, I think I'm writing the, the thing I'm best suited to write. So presumably, Robert Montgomery presents uh, The Man Who Vanished and In a Foreign City no longer exist for our delectation. No, they don't. And they, that's actually right. And uh, they were both based on – those two were both based on New Yorker short stories, the, the kind of you know two-page short stories, very short, short stories by Robert M. Coates. And uh, I read them and I thought, you know, you could – make a little play out of this. And I talked to him about it. And that's what I did. As long as we're dwelling back there in the past, I feel as though I also need to know about the person known as Johnny McPhee, who appeared as a panelist on 20 Questions in 1949. Would that have been you too? That's me. And I did that for the four years I was in college. The, the people who owned and appeared on that show lived in Princeton, New Jersey, where I did, where I grew up. And I went to high school with their son, who was on that show when he was in high school and all, and he went off, to, he's my age, he went off to Duke and had to leave the show to do that. And I replaced him temporarily, but the temporarily part was lasted for four years. So I was, I was on that uh, show. It was a radio show, and in the first fall, it became a television show that this is right. This is real beginnings yeah. of TV. It, was it a pleasant experience? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, you know, it's a parlor game. Twenty questions, mm -hmm. animal, vegetable, mineral, and, and I had played this game over and over again with Bob Vandeventer, who was my predecessor and in high school with me, and so I was sort of equipped to go on into it. You know, uh, obviously, you're you're best associated with the New Yorker. The New Yorker is known for many different things. For somebody like me who grew up wanting to write about humor. Um, the New Yorker was initially known for the, the great New Yorker infield uh, of, of Thurber and White and Perelman and Liebling. And as I read your stuff, it's interesting. Jonathan McNichol, who's producing the show, he and I flagged exactly the same line uh, in draft number four, where you're talking about this teacher who made you do three pieces of writing a week. And you say, Mrs. McKee made us do three pieces of writing a week. Not every single week. Some weeks had Thanksgiving in them. That's a that's a, a really nice little dry joke. Do you think of yourself as a funny writer? Is humor part of what you see uh, as the McPhee style? If humor couldn't be part of it, I wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> Simple as that. Yeah. I'm not trying to write humor. I'm trying I think that the hardest genre of writing there is is writing 
what Sandy Frazier writes, you know, mm-hmm. in his in Cora, the short one-page thing that says at the beginning, "This is funny, mm-hmm. and you better think so," <laughs> and and then we and then you got to be the first two or three lines are funny, but you got a whole page to go, and you got to keep it up and invent things that that work. And I just think that's so hard, I can't believe it. And uh, anyway, in, in my case, I've got the matrix of a long piece of writing about the towboats or whatever, mm-hmm. and the humor the humor rises. It just rises. But I hope it rises pretty often because it. I certainly wouldn't be doing any of this if I couldn't be using those, if I couldn't react to those situations. I think also you're helped by the fact that People, I think, are essentially funny. And you spend a lot of time with people. You spend a lot of time listening to people. And people who don't think of themselves necessarily as comedians, they think of themselves as people just trying to get through the day in whatever job they have. I don't don't know about you, but I often find them very funny. Don Ainsworth, truck driver, big 18-wheeler, you know. He's funny all the time. Mm -hmm. And I I rode across the United States from one ocean to the other with him. And you just write it down. A lot of the humor in that piece is coming from Don, not me. I was in a minor car accident on a mountain one time. And uh, so a a tow truck came from my car. And I was sitting in the tow truck with the tow truck driver. And another tow truck showed up. I guess they had not made it clear. They called too many. And meanwhile, all the traffic is kind of coming down the mountain and kind of swerving a bit around the scene of this minor crash. And uh, my tow truck driver got on the radio to the other tow truck driver. And he said, he just said, just stick around, Bobby. You'll get something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Sounds like a quota. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, I mean, the, uh, people are basically funny. But you're right. When you announce that you're trying to be funny, you've got some other problems that come up. So in this book, one of the things that you talk about is uh, what happened when Woody Allen started writing for The New Yorker. Roger Angel uh, was the person fielding these pieces. And he actually suggested, and this is a an almost McPhee-like observation that maybe we'll come to in terms of your work, that you didn't want too many jokes. You actually said there were too many funny lines in the piece. Uh, what did he mean by that? Let's say, hypothetically, you've got you've got four buds of humor lined up close together in, in something you've written. And if you took two of them out, the other two would, would add up to more than four. That the propinquity of too much, too many separate examples of humor do a little bit of canceling each other out. And, I mean, this is an insight that I think is so true and so worthwhile that Roger Angel passed on to Woody Allen. And and Woody Allen, I think, uh, took the stuff out that Roger suggested in order to enhance what was left. We're talking right now to John McPhee. His book is draft number four, On the Writing Process. We'll be back after this.
Midwest, we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. We're back. We're talking to John McPhee. His new book is draft number four on the writing process. There are an awful lot of people who write for a living who want to know what John McPhee's writing process is because he's been doing it uh, so much better than most of us for so long. I uh, want to come back to this notion, John McPhee, of of who you are in the writing of the piece. And I think it's fair to say that most of the time, not only while you're researching the piece and getting people to forget that you're a reporter and tell you things, but when you write the piece too, you you fade more out of the picture uh, as a character most of the time than most writers. Is, first of all, is that fair? And second of all, is that part of a writing philosophy? Yes, uh, in both cases. And I don't think I fade out so m- much as never there in the first place. And <laughs> or often enough, it depends. I mean, I have an idea that I don't think the writer should interpose him or herself between the reader and the material, the text. And the writer, here's an example I'd like to mention if I can tell this story. And that is that I wrote something called The Deltoid Pumpkin Seed. It was in three, it was a serial in three New Yorkers, 60,000 words long, about an experimental aircraft that was developed in New Jersey. And the pronoun I appeared in the original manuscript once in 60,000 words. Suddenly, way over near the end, I pop into the scene. Why? Because an engineer who had a Cessna, when this aircraft finally got itself off the ground after 58,000 words, this, this guy with the, jumped into a Cessna, and I jumped in with him. Now, what are you going to do? I mean, if the airplane goes up in the air and I'm suddenly describing something from 1,000 feet or whatever, it's weird. So I had to say I got in that airplane because it was necessary. And it was the only place in the whole manuscript. And my editor, Bob Bingham, he says, there's one eye in this whole thing. I can't be. And anyway, he insisted that I put a second eye in in the 60,000 words. And I went back and found a scene in an Exxon station somewhere and put it in. I think to, to carry it one step further, I think the writer should be present if it if necessary, but not because the writer is seeing him or herself as a prominent part of the story. So I'm sitting here next to my copy of draft number four on the writing process. There's no jacket photo of John McPhee. You've done your work in an age when a whole bunch of other people writing nonfiction went in the other direction, right? The insertion of themselves uh, as characters, in the case of Norman Mailer, uh, the um, insertion of their voice, their constant, (laughs) I'm trying to think of the right word, but Tom Wolfe, and he's right, he never lets you forget that Tom Wolfe is writing this piece, even if he doesn't identify himself in person. And David Foster Wallace, who came on later, who who's attempted a kind of conversational style where once in a once again you are constantly aware of this particular person talking to you. It's not your style of writing. Is it a style of reading that you can enjoy as a reader? Yes, <clears throat> I love reading Tom Wolfe in in those. But but at the same time, you know, different strokes for different folks. I I uh, prefer 
that my pieces not not have the presence of the author so prominent. I want to talk a little bit about something that you talk a lot about in draft number four, which is just what it's like to write and whether or not it's a pleasurable experience. There's a long description of you lying on your back for a very long time on a picnic table, <laughs> like some kind of Jules Pfeiffer cartoon <laughs> or something. And yeah. there's a that, and that that is your visual picture of a thwarted writer, a writer, either a thwarted writer or maybe a writer waiting for something, some message from heaven, metaphorically, right? I mean, just what's that feeling like when you've got, that's, that was the case where you had so much material, you didn't know where to begin with the material. Exactly. And so I was stymied, blocked by the fact that I didn't see how to get it all together. It was so miscellaneous in nature, that particular story. And so on. And I, th- I think that a certain amount of block, something, I mean, writer's block is a really serious condition for someone to get in. And I'm not talking about that per se, but I'm, I'm, my thought is that a little touch of it occurs in everybody a, a lot, like each day. When you go to transfer yourself from the walk around world, sit down and go into the world of your piece of writing, whatever it is. That transition is difficult. One of my favorite images about that is Joan Didion mentions this, and she mentions sitting in her living room or somewhere and looking over at the door to, to the study in which she writes. And she's just out, you know, in the, in the rest of the house, and she looks over and she sees this door and she feels, quote, the low dread, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... Something like that besets writers very often. And, I mean, you know, with me, it's daily. You you spend the whole day trying to get through that membrane and then write something. And uh, so, uh, so bad. I don't, I don't, I don't think that you, that I, I think that that occurs with, with most writers and in, certainly with me. And it, it occurs most of all in the, in the course of writing the first draft which is the, so difficult. And after the second draft, when I get into the third and particularly the fourth, which is you know a lot easier, I, I enjoy myself, but I don't enjoy myself in a first draft. And I've had first drafts take a, one year, for example. <laughs> I guess that wasn't much around the house. Roy Blunt Jr. one time suggested that what writers need are like coveralls, the way you know people in, in working professions have that. You know, you'd put those on, and maybe your name would be stitched over one of the breast pockets. It would say John, <laughs> and and that when you had your coveralls on, that would signify to you that it, you would be working now, and it would also signify to other people in the house that you're not available to repot plants or whatever it is that the other people in the house want you to do. But the, the somehow or other, we have to get the message to ourselves as writers that all right. Right now, just like a plumber, we're going to go do our jobs. But there, so, why is writing different from that? Why why can't we just go do our jobs? I don't know because I, I because of what I think I mentioned about the the different world that you're trying to go into. But but Blunt's coveralls and everything is a very appealing image. And <laughs> the thing, the, the fundamental thing about that is whatever works works. Right. If if you have to put on coveralls and a lamp on your head, do it. <laughs> do anything. I mean, I knew I I knew a guy once who actually wrote with a quill pen. Yeah. And and so on. I mean, it's just anything that gets you there. I mean, is a fundamental point that I'm trying to make in my book that I'm giving all these ideas, but if if, if I thought that but they don't universe one glove doesn't fit all and and uh 
Anything that gets you from A to Z, take it. Right. I think Franzen went through a period where he would blindfold himself and put earplugs in and like do all this stuff to create almost an isolation chamber so that he would have no distractions whatsoever and be totally isolated. Well, what are the things that you get at in the book? I think is there's this odd knife's edge that I think writers run their thumb down all the time. And it's the agony and the ecstasy of writing, right? There's, I mean, you write, uh, if you lack confidence in setting one word after another and sense that you are stuck in a place from which you will never be set free, if you feel sure that you will never make it and we're not cut out to do this, if your prose seems stillborn and you completely lack confidence, you must be a writer. If you say you see things differently and describe your efforts positively, if you tell people that you just love to write, you may be delusional. Uh, and, and I don't know how literally you meant that, but th- there's a way in which I think writers are, as you say, second or third draft. You're really kind of, uh, I, I think a lot of writers are happy, you know, in, in a moment where words are beginning to come together. You find the perfect way to describe a person or thing that seems so much better than what you were using before. And it's always there right on that knife's edge next to this incredible agony. Well, the passage you read, I I certainly meant that literally. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you often hear, you know, that the the craft is in revision and so on and so forth. It's a a kind of – and I believe it to be true. I mean, when when you've finally gotten on paper everything from the lead to the finish and – and in some form or other, however crude it, it, and rough, rough-hewn it is along the way, you have managed to, to lay your material out in some form of prose from one end to the other. And that's the, that's the first draft. Then you go back to the top and look at that and go through it after a day or so. And you really see one thing after another after another that you want to alter in ways that, I don't know, I feel in the end are a hell of a lot better than the <laughs> the thing I had there um, in the beginning. You begin the book with a really lengthy chapter about structure. It's been in the magazine also, and uh, it involves diagrams of ways to structure prose and and almost these uh, algebraic formulas for the ways you're going to try to set up certain kinds of uh, of interactions. I know you teach, you taught writing f- forever at Princeton. Do people get that? Is that a hard sell to young writers to say, yeah, really the first thing you've got to do is think about how you're going to structure this story? They seem to take to it. In 1982, Joel Achenbach, the great Joel of the yep. Washington Post and so on and so forth, he comes to me after the first class. He's hovering around outside the door and he says, I don't do structure. <laughs> and I said, I, I, I said, Joel, try it, for, try it for one semester. You could, and uh, anyway, he's he's. Uh, I think he tried it for one semester and and a great deal more. Yes, yeah. I, but but they seem they seem to take to it. And I get. I mean, what I always say about this is, as Mrs. McKee did to us in in Princeton High School, your structural outline that must accompany everything you do, even even if it's fiction can be in any form you choose, mm-hmm. the, 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 the kind of basic Roman numeral one, two, three. But it can be anything from that to an elaborate doodle. And I always bring that point across to my students because the elaborate doodle is probably, probably going to yield more. And they turn in some of the most amazing <laughs> conceptual drawings about the pieces they do. Really, they're little Steinbergs, they, <laughs> little drawings like that. 
Anyway, they they all turn in a structure thing, a structure outline with each piece of writing. Do you find uh, that when you're writing about people, as opposed to say geology, although when you write about geology, you wind up writing about people too. But when you when you're let's say you're working on something that's a little bit more of a profile. Back when I wrote profiles more, I used to have this idea that if I hung around and hung around and hung around, I used to call it the magic key moment. If I hung around forever. Sooner or later, the person would hand me a key, and it would could be almost anything, but it amounted to some kind of Rosetta Stone for kind of decoding the person, you know. And maybe, maybe it was. I remember a songwriter, a kind of a pop songwriter, who suddenly told me that her favorite play was King Lear, and I just thought about that and thought about it. I thought, well, that's that's a good way to tell your story. It actually explains about fifty things that I've been trying to understand about you. Does it does it work that way for you? Are you looking for? the person to kind of hand you some way of unlocking their story? No, I mean, I don't resonate with that as during interviewing, waiting and waiting for that. But what I'm sure happens is that one or more of those things comes along and it very much influences the ultimate structure, the arranging of, after you've done your interviewing and your note making, the arranging of the material. Would would be tr- little trigger points like that, that that you're mentioning would occur. I mean, in uh, encounters with the Arch Druid, we're going down the Grand Canyon with David Brower, and we go through a a rapid, a number ten rapid can't be run without risk of life. It says in the guidebook, <laughs> and and uh, so forth. And Brower walked around the rapid. He he, it was too much for him, and he didn't go through, and. Dominique, the, who was making his trip with him, the, da- the big federal dam builder, and so on, says to him at the end, "Dave, why didn't you go through the? Why didn't you? Why didn't you go ride with us through the rapid?" And Brower says, "Because I'm chicken." And so that particular story needed to be where it was in this narrative, but details of Brower's life could go anywhere, mm. and it is a detail of Brower's life that he had something like 36, whatever, I don't remember the number, yeah. fir- first ascents of peaks in the Sierra Nevada, a rope and piton climber clinging by his fingernails to some crag. And where to put that? That could go anywhere from the head, front of the ultimate book to the end. It went right after the upset rapid with a little white space in between yeah. these two sections. And that's the kind of thing I think you're talking about. That, it's a real key that a lot was said in that white space and about the whole piece. That was the first part of that total structure that where those two things came together because in the space between them, there's a lot of comment. He chickens out in the rapids. He clings by his fingernails to the crags. I don't know. I don't have to, I don't have to spell it out. No, and also that it takes a certain kind of courage to say that you're a chicken in that situation, and he has – Amen. A, a tremendous amount of courage. I mean, a demonstrable, quantifiable amount of courage. At least that's what I got in that white space. And anyway, yeah, that's right. That's right. We're talking to John McPhee right now. We're going to take a little break. We're going to um, do a final section with him. The occasion for this is draft number four on the writing process by John McPhee. Let's take that break, and then we're going to come right back. Don't tell me Working on the sequel and I'm giving you 
We're talking to John McPhee, a legendary writer of nonfiction. He's not actually an actual legend. He does exist, but he's a legend to many of us who've tried to do the same thing, but maybe not as well. His book about the writing process is called Draft Number Four on the Writing Process. You know, there are ways in which it, I don't know, it almost reminds me a little bit of the book that you did about the Merchant Marine, which you were doing kind of at a time when the people who'd done that job were finding it harder and harder to find opportunities to do that job. It's about people literally looking for a ship. And that these days, the way the writing profession is, the kind of opportunities that you had seem harder to come by. The likelihood that any magazine editor is going to say to any writer, take as long as you need to just get it right which was the kind of thing that Sean might say to you, those opportunities seem less and less available to writers. I don't react to that a little bit. Maybe you don't see it that way. Well, there's several things that, listening to what you're saying, I mean, it's uh, absolutely true that, that the amount of space that Sean had versus what David Remnick had, has is quite different. And uh, the, the long serial pieces don't appear much anymore. My most recent one was when Remnick wanted to run one. The, the one about the Union Pacific Railroad that I mentioned was mm-hmm. ran in two consecutive New Yorkers. So that world is sort of definitely gone gone by. The way that many of those pieces came to me were just happenstance, really. I mean, I, I've only reacted to in my in fifty years to positively, that is, to two letters telling me what to write about. Mm-hmm. Uh, ask, I mean, one was from a sailor on a, merchant, on a merchant ship in the Gulf of Mexico, and he, the things he said caused me to call him up when he got home, and I went to Mean when he was on the beach, you know, and, and uh, I uh, went off in the merchant ship with him. And D- Don Ainsworth, a truck driver, read this piece and writes me a letter saying, if you're going to go out there on the ocean with them, you should come out on the road with us. Mm-hmm. And I wrote back to him and said, tell me what you do. And in terms of he, he, he owned a chemical tanker and he went around taking hazmats and other things here and there all over the United States and in Canada. That's how those two pieces came about. Would, they, would that happen now? Yeah, but I think the pieces would be shorter. But my son-in-law, Alexander Stilla, developed a, a whole series of pieces about artifacts in the world and, and, and the, the pyramids and so forth and what would become of them. And he did this in separate pieces because of this tendency of, of magazines and so forth to shrink. And so, so instead of writing a three-part piece going on forever, he wrote a piece on the pyramids and a piece on something else. And he called his his book, all these fragments put together were about a common theme, and he called it the future of the past. And I thought, ooh, <laughs> there's a good idea. And so the, those transportation pieces were, because Sandro had <laughs> done that, I thought, well, this you could do this with these transportation pieces. They don't have to go on forever. You can you can write about the towboat in the, uh, in the Midwest and the, the, the train that I mentioned and so on. They, they all ran in... Uh, in, in, in one book, but, uh, which was my plan. But they were very separate pieces uh, in The New Yorker over a period of time. I think about this problem all the time because I'm teaching 16 young writers every spring, and, and they're going into this world where, where 
they need to cope with the problem of publication. And I don't have any kind of full thing to tell them that'll it'll be a magic key at all. I'm bargaining with my producer right now for how many more questions I can ask you. He says two, I say three. So I'm, I want to go back to what we were talking about before, and I want to posit that or stipulate that uh, you don't go into one of these pieces with this notion that you're going to make a difference or impart a moral or... Correct. Or uh, what did Louis B. Mayer say? If you want to send a message, call Western Union. That that you're not doing. Okay, having stipulated that, do you think your pieces have made a difference? Do you think people read what you write about the world and and that things change? In some instances, yeah. I could just name two. The Mm -hmm. Pine Barrens, Brendan Byrne, the, the governor who caused the preservation and the state and federal laws or whatever to come together to create the preservation of the New Jersey Pine Barrens always attributed it to, or a lot of it, uh, his interest in it to uh, my book called The Pine Barrens. Uh, The Pine Barrens are very much like the Adirondack Park situation, um, vastly smaller, but still a a kind of uh, state and there's private land in in the region and so forth. But anyway, that it had that influence. And the other coming into the country was about Alaska. It was about it was at the time when the pipeline had just been created, when and the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act had been passed uh, to accommodate the pipeline. And so it was a vast shakeup of of uh, land in which Alaska, the state itself, got a modest portion that was about the size of California. And uh, the the federal government kept such and such and the natives the rest. And this is when I was up there and there was a lot of controversy in Alaska over the pipeline, over development versus conservation and so forth. And if ever there was a time, and I, I spent three years on this project and I did not want to be stepping in and saying, think this way, mm-hmm. vote that way. But I would hope that from the material that I wrote, somebody could be informed about this. And I believe that they were. I think it had, I know that it had some influence here and there about, I can't mention chapter and verse because I don't really know it. It's not as simple as the Pine Barrens. So let me give another example and have you react to it. So uh, Encounters with the Archdruid, which is, uh, we just talked about it before in connection with the white water thing and being a chicken. But this is your deliberative attempt to set up these kind of Socratic encounters between an environmentalist and three um, men whose goal is in one way or another to transform nature for profit. Um, and and so um, I'm going to read a, a McPhee piece. Uh, this is uh, involves this guy Brower that we were just talking about, uh, and he's on some kind of a massive. Well, you'll see this yacht belonging to this guy who's sort of a developer, um, and it's uh, it goes the following evening. We transferred our gear to a motor ship called the Intrepid, which had slipped quietly down the coast from Hilton Head and into the Cumberland River. The size of Fraser's yacht was proportionate to his distaste for wilderness. The yacht was 90 feet long. It contained five staterooms and a floor-through saloon. Its bar was stocked with Tanqueray gin. Fraser's southern antennae had reached out unobtrusively supra-socially, and their research had shown that Tanqueray is Brower's gin of gins. 
So now I would make the argument that one thing that can happen in a McPhee piece, particularly something like this, is you know something that a theologian would call agape. Maybe this kind of recognition of humankind's generalized love for one another or appreciation or, you know, use whatever word you want for that, that there's a way in which these guys who are totally at swords points about like what's going to happen, what's going to happen even in this part of the world, somehow or other are having a kind of human experience, which at least makes the wealthy developer guy want to make sure there's the kind of gin that the environmentalist likes. And at the end of all this, Fraser didn't do some of the things he could have done, right? And I'm wondering whether it's because of this kind of recognized moment of humanity. Well, he certainly recognized that Dave liked uh, Tanqueray gin, <laughs> and, uh, which he did. I was very surprised in, in, that, in that encounter at the extent to which Dave was sort of uh, mellow and cooperative and and so on. He was much feistier with uh, the two other antagonists that we put him together with. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's shared humanity, all right. But, I mean, I think Fraser was pretty fairly uh, crafty. A last philosophical question for you. Are you a declinist? And, and, and I, sp- I think specifically about human beings. So Vonnegut really hated and feared humankind. He'd call them – I was with him one time when he was talking to a bunch of high school students and he, he said, mankind is like a syphilis on the face of the earth. You know, the sooner we're gone, the better. And you saw their little faces kind of crumple. Um, <laughs> and, but, I, you know, reading you, I'm not – I mean I sense, I sense a kind of love of humankind and appreciation of humankind, occasionally a hopefulness. But there's also quite a bit in your work about what we do to the planet. How do you how do you see people in the last analysis? The, the, the opposite of Kurt Vonnegut, <laughs> the the uh, who, whose stuff I really loved. But um, yeah, no, I I have. Uh, I have very, very positive vibes about people generally. My producer, Jonathan McNichol, wants me to ask if you have a, a new project on the burner somewhere. Well, yeah, I have a, a actually a, a book that'll be, it'll be a collection of uh, miscellaneous pieces and uh, still another book. All right. Well, that's good to hear. And John McPhee, what a thrill uh, to get to talk to you uh, after all these years. Uh, and the book that occasioned this is draft number four on the writing process. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Been a great pleasure. It's a thousand pages, give or take a few. I've been writing more in a week or two. I can make it longer if you like the style. I can change it round and I want to be a paperback writer. Paperback writer. 